0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This lecture is on women in Jewish history during the period of the Bible. The talk was recorded at the Jewish Museum in 2017, the first of a seven-part series on women in Jewish history. Unfortunately, many of the lectures from that series were not successfully recorded. However, for those who are interested in learning more about women in Jewish history, please refer to the webpage for this episode, where you will find a list of lectures on women in Jewish history taken from different series that David has given over the
1: years. I'm going to divide this course into the standard chronological structure that I use for most of my discussions, and one in which is the fundamental underlying structure of Jewish history. And what that means in terms of tonight is this I'm going to call this minus 500, 500 BCE, and we're going to call this. 1,000 B.C. or minus 1,000. And this 500 year period here is what really we call in, in, uh, in Jewish history, we call it the first temple period. But we're going to start a little bit prior to that, around about minus 1,200. And we're going to go up to what is roughly regarded or roughly in, um, represents the end of the Bible the end of the Biblical period. In other words, this evening, I'm going to talk about important, impactful, influential, interesting women in Jewish history that we encountered during the Biblical period. Now, I know that already, inwardly, some of you are groaning, Ah, oh, he's going to do the Bible. He's going to talk about people we hear about all the time it's not really history and it's not really anything new well we'll see and the primary source we have for this period of Jewish history up to around 500 BC is the Bible not entirely but for the most part I just wanted to say in uh, in advance and this is kind of important and I can feel relaxed enough with this audience to uh, to express this And that is, it may come as a surprise to some of you, but I'm not a woman. (laughs) That means that I have to make a decision and a kind of a balance about everything that we're talking about, about how to talk about the role and the influence and the identity and status and so on of women. And I have found in the past that when I do that, and most men uh, who try to be uh, uh, productive members of society, despite their being men, uh, strive uh, to express things in a way that are adequate to uh, sensible relations between genders, but I often find myself saying things that excite half an audience and offend the other half, and so uh, ...that's one element of the balance that I have to do. I'm not trying to make myself out to be a, some sensitive new age guy. I mean, I am, but that's not what I'm trying to communicate here. Thank you. Um, the other thing is, is that I want us to think about that question, women in Jewish history. This is going to sound trivial, but it's very important and it will help you understand what I'm trying to articulate in this course... ...is that we have a dilemma. There are two aspects... Are we going to talk about women who are great, influential, ordinary, interesting people who happen to be women, or are we going to talk about people who are great because of the fact that they are women? Do you understand the difference? And I think what we're going to be doing is both. And on any of the individuals, or circumstances, or narrative stories that we talk about over the next few weeks, Let's bear that in mind. So I just needed to say that preparatory thing. It's not a simple business to get up and define women in Jewish history. But I'm going to start with the biblical period. And I also need us to be aware that I am not going to be dealing this evening with the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. The five books of Moses. I'm not going to deal with that. Because number one many of us learn about those women all the time that's not the primary reason but it is there is a much greater familiarity with sarah rebecca rachel leah miriam the daughters of tzlov etc the you can count on two hands the number of women that are really prominently discussed in the bible and even those women as important as they are We don't really get an insight into the complexities of their personalities and their situation. There's not a lot of light and shade going on. And also because we don't necessarily have enough time. I'm going to pick up from the end of the Torah, from the end of the Pentateuch, and we're going to look at the rest of the Bible and the biblical narrative and that period. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? good because by the time we get to here in Jewish history I have some other introductory remarks I'm going to leave them I want to get into it uh, we've uh, that's, the, that's the main thing that's troubling me I've got to say it's because the other thing about the Torah is the Torah is the most important primary holy uh, spiritual textual treasure of the Jewish people it is our main document from which we derive everything our identity our raison d'etre our spiritual code our entire spiritual heritage is is is, is ground in the torah but the torah is not at this stage capital h history it's not historical that doesn't mean it didn't happen but it doesn't conform to the criteria we establish for what is history and independent verification of the things that are mentioned there however the period we're going to begin to look at tonight we are already entering into proto-historical phases of Jewish history And what I mean by proto-historical is that we don't have any direct evidence of specific people or events, but we do have a lot of archaeological and chronological evidence and historical evidence that, that there is a rise of some kind of new monotheistic Semitic culture in the land of Israel and that the narrative that the Bible gives us is so far not conflicting at all with what we know of that period and we see that more and more. And so I'm going to start from round about here and this after the whole exodus and the movement, the migration of this nation that has been liberated from Egypt moves towards the Canaanite territories and all that wandering in the 40 years that the book of uh, Deuteronomy describes and then Moses goes off to the mountain and dies and then hands on the leadership to his successor who is going to take the nation of Israel into the land of Israel and conquer it. And that leader is Joshua. Joshua. And he has his own book called the book of Joshua. And it is in the book of Joshua that we are going to encounter the first important woman that I'm going to talk about tonight. And I'm going to talk about all these women thematically linked... Uh, in a way that I hope will demonstrate an important point about history and about women and about the Bible. But let me show you how that works. First of all for those of you who are not familiar with the way I, I talk that as those of you who know is the Mediterranean. Right? There's the water. So here's the land of Israel so the Jewish people are about to cross the They cross the Jordan and they come into the land and what is the first city that they must conquer? Jericho. Jericho Yericho in Hebrew by the way I mean not just that Yericho is one of the most ancient of all human habitations it really is astonishingly old and even in Joshua's time it was a very strongly walled city The term, the name Yuricho is related to what Hebrew word? Yareach, meaning the moon. We understand that there was some kind of moon cult worship that was going on at Jericho. And we also understand from uh, textual analysis and from other historical sources that it was probably in the grips of a type of brutal dictatorship at the time and joshua decides to send two spies into jericho these are not like the spies that moses had sent who came back with the bad report that caused a collapse in the morale of israel that caused israel to have to wander around the desert for 40 years these two spies are gung-ho and they're there to do a job and check give some intel back to joshua on what's going on in the city and they get into the city and the authorities become aware that they are there so they have to hide in the city and where do you go if you're in a city and you need to hide where do you go what type of woman you go to a brothel well yeah that's a whole discussion they went to a woman who is the first significant woman i want to talk about an amazing woman and very very influential in, in, in the way that Jewish history and biblical narrative has been received and understood within Jewish history, and her name is Rachav or Rahab, as they call it. Rachav is a prostitute, and she lives in an apartment in the wall. And not only does she. Uh, entertain these spies, uh, entertain in a kind of a wholesome way, uh, and protect them, and she even hides them and even lies to the authorities of her own city about having seen them, when they're actually in her apartment and she's hiding them, she gives them the in- precisely the intel that they are after. What they are after is not so much about the physical weaknesses of the city that's not going to be a problem for them they have this weapon called God what they want to know is the morale of the population and Rahav is able to tell them she said I'll tell you what's happening in the city, what's happening is that people are freaking out we have heard of you we heard how you came out of egypt we heard how your god split the sea we heard how he sustained an entire nation in the desert we heard how you conquered Sichon and og and moab and the other nations on your way to here we know that you will take the city we know that your god is god that's what they needed to hear And they went to return to Joshua to give him all that intel. And she said, but what's going to happen is that you're going to enter the city and you're going to annihilate everyone. In return for this intel and for me having protected you and hidden you from the authorities, I would like you to spare my life and the life of my family. And the way we're going to do that is I'm going to hang a red cord outside the window And there's a fascinating, unexplained correlation between the red cord hanging out of Rahab's window and the concept of a red light district. This is very interesting. I'm going to, and and as someone pointed out today, actually, there's a whole relationship potentially with that red cord and the blood that they had to paint on the Passover on the doorposts. That's an unexplored relationship. But she said, and I and my parents and my siblings and their children, my extended family, we're gonna be in this apartment and you need to spare us when you come and true to their word when the nation of israel came and they destroyed jericho and of course they destroyed it. they walked around the walls seven times they blew the shofar and the walls just came down and rahav and her family were completely spared not only were they spared but they were then brought into the fold of israel and they joined the jewish people and yet retained a distinct identity because the Rahabites, as they were known as a distinct community within the Jewish nation, were still known as a distinct entity hundreds of years later on. As I was saying it now, for some reason I thought, it's a bit tricky because if they're in an the w- apartment in the wall and the wall collapses, they all would have been killed. But let's assume that the wall, par- the most of the wall collapsed, right? Let's, let's, just, let's just say that. I'm, it's a very good question. I'm not going to get into the dynamics, right? Maybe she was at the bottom of the wall, on the top of the wall. I don't know. <laughs> thing is, yeah. But here, here's here, now. Now we can read that story and we can go. Well, that's very interesting. She's an. What nationality was Rahab? Jerichoan. <laughs> <laughs> she was Canaanite. She was Canaanite. Now, Canaanite is not a holistic thing. The Canaanites were a generic name given to all of the different tribes and national and racial entities living in that area, what we now call Israel at the time, but she would have been pretty standard pagan Canaanite.
0: You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more.
1: And the Canaanites had some pretty interesting religions going on as well. Now, I'm going to... I I, I need to make this point. I need to explain. I think that our perspective on the history that we attain from the Bible is is enriched by understanding the way that these biblical narratives have been received in Jewish history. Some of you would be familiar that we have a layer... Of historical discourse called midrash midrash is exegesis and it is the filling in in many cases of very sparse narrative or very sparse sketchy understandings of personalities and over the last few thousand years based on oral traditions that are passed down some of which contain actual historical material and some of which are speculations based on the way that the text delivers the information or logical gaps or whatever we derive an entire genre called Midrash and Midrash is important because it doesn't just fill in the gaps of historical narrative it shows us how those narratives have worked inside Jewish history and the influence that they have had but it's important to point out where midrash is midrash and where it's not let me give you one example of that all of you are familiar with the figure of abraham yeah some of you would know the story of abraham when he was still a young man or even a boy in sumeria and what he did to his father's idol shop yeah you all know that he smashed up all the idols, his father came home and said, what happened here? And he goes, oh, the idols had a big fight. And the father says, oh, the idols can't fight each other. And Abraham goes, well, there's my point. Now, a lot of people, not just people who've only never read the Bible, but a lot of people are not always aware that that story about Abraham is not in the Bible. It's Midrash. It's a Midrash that is part of a whole way of trying to explain How is it that God suddenly says to Abraham, you get up and go to the land that I will show you and I'll make a covenant with you and you're great and you're amazing. We have hardly heard anything about Abraham. Like what happened? What did he do to deserve this? And so Midrash comes and fills in the gaps. But they're important Midrashim because they give us an understanding of how these narratives and people are received. So I want to talk about Yael for a minute. uh, and And this not only gives us an insight into Yael and the history... Not Yael, Rachav. Huh? <laughs> Rachav. Because I was, I'm jumping ahead. Not only does it give us an insight into Rachav, it gives us an insight into the rabbis themselves who were discussing Rachav. And also, I'm going to push your boundaries a bit. Why not? What do the rabbis say about Rachav? The... The Bible tells us that Rahav was a prostitute. And of course, you're shaking your head. Well, she was an innkeeper. No, she was a prostitute. The word zonah means harlot. Now, there is an Aramaic translation of that that some medieval commenters thought that, the, that it was trying to indicate that she was an innkeeper. But as the Radak and others point out, is that, that very word for innkeeper in Aramaic actually also means harlot and the word Zona is very unambiguous the rabbis had no problem understanding her as a harlot you have got to remember I mean prostitution in the ancient world was a kind of semi-respected profession to work in the sex industry it wasn't something you wanted your family doing but it was respected not just in the secular domain but equally, they were in the domains of temples and sacred sites, had temple prostitutes. So it was recognized that there were these women that worked in that industry. But for the rabbis, they had to go much further than that. Rahav was not merely a prostitute. Rahav was... Th- and this is really telling you more about the rabbis than about Rachav, but Rachav was the most erotic woman that ever lived the mere mention of her name caused men to sexually climax this is what the rabbis tell us in the Talmud yeah. didn't any of the rabbis see her as a traitor to her own people no, no they didn't, they saw her as an extremely high level convert who recognised the universality of the true God very interesting. How did that tell us about the Well, the rabbis, well, well, the Bible itself, the Bible itself extols Rahav, so they can't move around that. They can't say suddenly Rahav's a bad person. They had to say. But what's interesting is that that is the reason why she married Joshua, according to Midrash. That itself is not in the Bible, but Midrash tells us she married Joshua, and therefore the Rahabites, hundreds of years later, saw themselves as descendants of Rahav and Joshua she marries Joshua because Joshua was the only man capable of consummating relations with her and the fact that Joshua was 90 years old at the time might have helped (laughs) and he was of course an extremely high level holy person so that is an insight into what the rabbis are doing with Rahav but I'm going to come I'm going to fit Rahav in thematically when I talk about the next couple of women, and then I want to just stand back for a minute and look at what the early stages of the post pentateuchal Bible, what they have to say about women, uh, and uh, you will see how that kind of perception and that kind of uh, role uh, fits in. Because I want to move on and I want to talk about, you see, after Joshua... Here's the land of Israel, and after Joshua, uh, well, well, let's talk about Joshua for a second, because there's something I need to point out about this. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get too sensitive about this, but those of you who are exposed to uh, teaching and uh, the teaching of you know, biblical education might be aware That probably the most difficult book to teach in our generation uh, would be the book of Joshua because basically the entire book from beginning to end is just from the perspective of our generation looks like just one great big long war crime they were going around effectively ethnically cleansing or annihilating entire nations on the command of god now the uh our assessment of that notwithstanding oh, that doesn't stop people today by the way heralding that era as some kind of precedent that we should be looking towards and many people don't realize that the conquests of joshua as impressive as they were equal almost exactly the size and dimensions of what is today the west bank and that was the inverse of today because then all of that Gushdan, Tel Aviv, all of that western coastal region was in the hands of the Philistines. Whereas today the western coastal region, Gushdan, Tel Aviv, all the rest of it, is the one part of Israel where the world is prepared to say that's Israel and it is precisely the West Bank, the conquests of Joshua, that are in some sort of international conflict. It's a fascinating inversion joshua is not in my opinion a good precedent for us to be looking at but it's a very difficult book to teach which makes it more astonishing because they were in fact commanded to annihilate everyone and yet they accepted rahav and they accepted rahav's family so it's not just that rahav really becomes the first convert and i know that we might touch upon Ruth and so on who are other proto-converts but that Rachav becomes an extraordinarily high level convert that is accepted even in a general rubric where there is a lot of conquest and annihilation going on she going well her influence was acting as an example for all her descendants and as an example to uh, Joshua and to the people that some of these Canaanites could be accepted if they were under you know if if they were uh, professing uh, the universality of uh, the monotheistic God well it's, it's it's a difficult question but I just I want to move on because after Joshua the nation of Israel is settling the land according to tribes right now these are the tribes allocating the or allocated their lands and they and they conquer them but they are more or less a loose confederacy of tribes there's no central authority in other words each one's got their own issues Uh, tribes with problems up here because they've got enemies they're dealing with can't call upon the other tribe they know they share a common myth and a common point of origin but they can't call on each other because they've all got their own issues these guys can't come and help these guys because they've got their own issues they've got to deal with Now, all of this is happening around about the year 1200 as we enter into the phase known that's covered by the book of Judges in the Bible. And I just need to spend a minute talking about round about what's going on in 1200 BC because it's very, very important to what is about to unfold. Uh, some of you would be aware that this is the period around about 1200 just as we're conquering the land that we are at a tremendous technological disadvantage because we do not have this new thing called iron the hittites nearby have invented an oven that they can turn up to 800 degrees celsius they can smelt iron and the great advantage of iron is not just its strength it's the fact that you can produce it very quickly iron is everywhere and whereas before you might have 50 men you might have an army where there's one spear or one sword among 50 men. Now you can arm thousands of men very quickly with cheaply and easily produced materials. That's the real shift that happens. And what we find is is that now that we didn't used to know this, but in the last couple of hundred years, archaeologists and historians have done a lot of work and we now realize something. And that is that round about this period there is a An entire wave of destruction that goes right throughout here. From the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia right through to Egypt. Civilization collapses. It is destroyed. And archaeologically at that level in every dig that you find, you find this wave of destruction. It's not... Incredible to link a wave of destruction with the arrival on the scene of an entirely new military technology. It's known in ancient history as the catastrophe, this collapse of society. Not just one nation, the whole of global civilization collapsed after the invention of iron. That therefore meant that whereas the big civilizations of Sumeria and Egypt were going into temporary recession that created a vacuum in the Levant and in the area of the Middle East that is of our concern. That meant that there were new powers arising in this area, and one place where several uh, warlords tried their hand to create types of entities, kingdoms that would eventually go on to become empires. Remember that they hadn't read history and they didn't know the Bible, didn't know how things would turn out. For all they knew, they were going to be the next big thing. And one of the big centers for that was at a place called Chatzor. Chatzor is in the north, right in the north of Israel, virtually in the Golan. And Chatzor, through its use of iron, controlled the land of Israel, and controlled particularly the Jezreel Valley. The fertile Jezreel Valley. And the reality of it is, certainly in the ancient world, whether they admit it or not, if you control the Jezreel Valley, you control the Middle East. That is the gateway between Egypt and Sumeria and Turkey and Lebanon and Phoenicia and everything going on here. And it's fertile and it's a pass. Everywhere else is desert, mountains, That's been the case for a long time. The Jezreel Valley is very, very important. And they were controlling it in a brutal dictatorship for 20 years. A king called Yavin. And he controlled it through the use of 900 iron chariots. Which were under the command of a general called Sisera now as I said this thing went on for 20 years that was part of the cycle of what was happening in this phase of Jewish history there were oppressions, liberations, oppressions, liberations this is the period of the judges, there was no dynasty, there were no dynasties there was no central authority, heroes would rise up they would deal with crises and then go and retire back at the farm but this was a particularly difficult period looked very very much like Jewish history could have even possibly come to an end. The person who delivered from this problem is known as the Mother of Israel. And her name, of course, is Devorah. And Devorah, the Bible tells us, was a prophetess. She was the spiritual leader of the age now I I need to emphasize that because some of you are sitting there okay she was the spiritual leader of the age there are many people who believe they may not all be in this room but there are many people who do believe that Jewish history or Judaism is this static representation of what it has always been and that is simply not the case Jewish history, Jewish civilization Jewish culture has evolved and the last thousand years has seen the constant disempowering of women being pulled back a bit now in some sectors of the Jewish world but in previous epochs it was not a problem for a woman to be The spiritual leader of that generation. Devorah was the spiritual leader of the generation. And not only that. We are told that she wasn't just a prophetess. She was actually a judge. And she judged people. She sat under a palm tree. Somewhere in the middle of the country. And people would come to her with their issues. She was like a biblical Dr. Phil. (laughs) And she sat there. And she realized. That liberation from this oppression was key to the continued survival of the Jewish nation and what we see throughout this narrative and as well as all the midrashic material associated with what we see throughout this narrative is that women had a very specific relationship towards violence. They didn't do it. Men did violence. Men carried out wars women could be the instigators of them but they did not fight they did not carry weapons and they did not engage in violence if you need people to do violence and you need a war get men men like that sort of thing it's what they do well but that is very clear right throughout. And when we're trying to define the status of women, and we're not just gonna see it with Devorah, we're gonna see it with others as well, is that if they do engage in war or battle, <coughs> it's regarded as highly, highly unusual. By the way, just, just as a footnote, um and some of you are sitting going, Oh, Chatzor, you know, yeah, another place. Uh, just a place, David mentioned, right? You are aware, are you not, that Chatzor is the largest archaeological site in Israel. It is a world heritage site. It is hundreds of acres and they have been working at Chatzor since the 50s and they poured even more resources into it in the 90s and they have dug at every single layer and at exactly the layer where the Bible tells us is this massive destruction of Chatzor, they find that level of destruction. Khatsor is the most amazing archaeological dig. And so we know a lot about the background. There's no rock that says, hi, I'm Devora. I was here. She probably wasn't in Chatzor anyway. She was elsewhere. But we don't have evidence of exactly the people, but we have evidence of all the background issues. And so Devora calls upon a general or a military, a guy who has some military experience and called Barak. Not Obama, not Ehud, Barak. And she says, You need to get an army going. And only two tribes were involved in this army these northern tribes of Naftali and Zvulun. Naftali and Zvulun. And they got 10,000 men. Barak managed to enlist 10,000 men in his army. And he said, I'm not going out to war against Sisera's chariots and against the Chatzorian army unless you come with me. And Devorah goes, "Okay, highly unusual. I will go with you and I will be your moral inspiration. They march these 10,000 men up to the top of Mount Tavor in a massive act of defiance. Sisera takes his 900 chariots into the Jezreel Valley to face them. Mount Tabor sits just at the northern apex of the valley. And as you famously know, there was a huge downpour overnight. The Kishon, or a tributary of the Kishon River, overflowed. Everything turned into mud. Sisera's 900 chariots sunk deep, stuck in the mud. Dvorah goes, now! And Barak and his 10,000 men swoop down from Mount Tabor, onto the plane and slaughter everyone <clears throat> and effect a massive liberation a national liberation meanwhile the general sisera who has fallen off his own chariot escapes from the battlefield and is running in search of somewhere to take refuge Because obviously he is the main focal point of the Israelites' anger. As you would imagine, having brutally repressed them for 20 years. And he's running, exhausted. And he's running and he's running. And suddenly he sees the tent of an ally called Hever the Kenite. Now the Kenites are interesting. They are also, they're connected with Jethro and they are uh, like a, well, you know who the Kenites are exactly like? They're exactly like... When you think... Who do you think of when you think people living in the north of Israel who are kind of not part of the uh, around society around them, but like loyal... Jews. The Druze. That, and it's amazing because the Druze also have a whole thing about Jethro. The Kenites were the, Jew, the Druze. And what we sometimes forget when we think, you know, when we think the Druze, we have warm, fluffy thoughts, right? Oh, the Druze—they serve in the IDF. They're so nice. They're loyal. They're not Jewish, but they're loyal. And we sometimes forget that there are Druze on the other side of the border who live in Syria, who are loyal to Syria. I mean, the Druze—it's just a quality the Druze have. They are loyal to the nation in which they live. Now, heber the Kenite is a neutral, but he has made an alliance of friendship with Yavim. So when sisera sees his king's allies tent he goes oh brilliant and he rushes inside and in at the tent is Hever's wife Yael and Hever is not at home and Yael takes Sisera in and says you will be safe here and she goes in and he's exhausted and he's thirsty and she gives him milk And so he gets sleepy and he lies down and she puts a blanket over him and he goes to sleep. And then she takes a tent peg and a mallet and drives it through his temple and pins his skull to the ground. And after a series of fits and convulsions, he dies. She kills him. She is then extolled in Jewish history as a fabulous heroine. She is the woman that Devorah prophesied that Sisera will fall at the hands of a woman. It wasn't Devorah herself, it was in fact Yael. And then, of course, like every woman that does something amazing in the Bible, she then goes and converts to Judaism, etc. Right? But Yael is an extremely important part of the story chapter four of the book of judges talks about the story of Devorah and the story of yael chapter five is this amazing poem which represents one of the oldest parts of talach stunning hebrew which is a poetic rendition of the story of Devorah. the rabbis not enough for them this story midrash does a whole thing with it now I'm only going this for one minute because it's not really the historical aspect of it but it's, I want to look at it in the way that these stories are received within Jewish history and what they say about the status of women and what they say about how women are perceived because they of course obviously are telling you that Sisera and Yael had sexual relations and she did that in order to exhaust him it is a case, the Talmud tells us, of a sin that is even greater than a good deed because it had such a high and lofty intent. Uh, amazingly, that puts her in complete inverse to Rachav. Rachav, who is a prostitute, takes in the enemy, lies to her own authorities, and then enables those people to live Yael, who is a housewife takes in the ally of her husband sleeps with him and then in contravention of all laws of the sacredness of hospitality kills him these two women do exactly the opposite, you couldn't even try and match how much opposite they are, and yet they are both extolled the rabbis also tell us about Yael that also of course she was highly erotic and, but not at the level of Rachav, she was uh, her, she was able to make men arouse desire in men so that they would want to go home and make love to their wives so according to the rabbis this was a higher level of eroticism it sounds like
0: that he raped her and that's why she
1: Either that or she didn't want her husband to get back and find out what had happened or any, and there are a number of those reasons. But the probable thing is when you analyze it is that she knew that the Israelites had won the battle and it would be a lot more effective for her to become a hero for the Israelites for having killed their main enemy than have Barak and his men come along and find her sheltering Zizra in her house. So kind of did the right thing. But putting aside the rabbinic commentary, Yael is, I, 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 want, I want to spend... Now I just want to stand back before we've got a lot to cover tonight and I want to look at these three women and I want us to look at something about them because here is where it's going to shift. What these three women have in common is that they are all empowered and they are all able to control their own destiny. They take it in their own hands to determine the outcome of their fate. This is very, very important. We're not going to see this idea of the status of women as being in control and empowered over their own lives in whichever way they do that. That's not sustained. So much so, in fact, well, well, the next woman I want to talk about briefly, which is in the book of Judges, as we move on the book of Judges, one of the heroes that comes along in the book of Judges to deal with issues is a very interesting guy called very interesting hero called Yiftach Jephthah in uh, Hebrew in English (coughs) Yiftach is the son of a prostitute his father had a few wives and had several sons from those wives but he also had relations with a harlot and Yiftach was the product of that, so he was seen as the illegitimate child, and his brothers always let him know that, and they shunned him. Therefore, once he's grown up, he's basically hanging out with bogans, as the Tanakh puts it, and he's hanging around, just, you know, what guys who lead gangs of bogans, and they go around, and they cause trouble, and he is in this part of the country where they are having trouble with... uh, A nation that is harassing them called the Ammonites, which are not those little crusty shell things on rocks by the beach. They are actually a nation in the Middle East, the Ammonites. And they go to Yiftach and they say to him, you know, you're a pretty likely lad and, you know, you regard yourself as a a bit of a man. How would you like to lead us in war against the Ammonites? Take your men and go and defeat them. And uh, Yiftach says, why should I do that for you? You've shunned and ostracized me all my life because of my status. And they say, well, what would it take? And he goes, well, I'll do it if I'm victorious and I come back and I'm victorious. You are going to make me your leader. And the nation of Israel says, "Okay, if you can defeat the Ammonites, you can be our leader. So Yiftach goes out to fight the Ammonites as he is leaving on his way to fight the Ammonites he says one of the most incredibly unthought out things that anyone has said since or in the Bible, it's probably one of the most uh, certain words I don't want to use about leaders of Israel but this is really really out there, why anyone would say this, especially when you're talking to God and you're in the Bible You know what's going to happen. He says, If God, if I return victorious from my war with the Ammonites, I will sacrifice to you the first thing I see when I get back, the first thing that comes out to greet me. And of course, he goes, he defeats the Ammonites, he comes back, and as he's coming towards his house, his daughter runs out, to greet him and to wish him well on his victory. Oh no! Now I have to sacrifice you to God. And amazingly, she goes, Oh no! Now you have to sacrifice me to God because you made a vow. They're all pretty upset. However, she says, I understand that you have to fulfill your vow to God but before you do can I ask one thing before you do and this also has to go down as one of the strangest and most inexplicable statements made in the Bible I want to take a couple of months to go with my friends into the hills and, and I quote whatever this might mean bewail my virginity now we're not entirely sure what that means well I imagine she was a late teenager we're not entirely, no not a tiny little girl we're not entirely sure what that means if her problem was that she didn't want to die a virgin that could have been easily fixed There's something else. Maybe it was because of a loss of fecundity. Maybe because she would never have children. Maybe she would never be able to consummate true love. But whatever it is that it represented in the biblical age, she went with her friends to the hills for a few months and bewailed her virginity. And then Yiftach fulfilled his vow. That's what the Tanakh tells us. Now, later commentators come along. It doesn't say he sacrificed. It just says he fulfilled his vow. So later commentators come along and they go, that's impossible. Human sacrifice? The whole of the nation of Israel's spirituality is predicated against human sacrifice. Abraham himself was told not to sacrifice his son. Human sacrifice was regarded as the greatest abomination that set Israel apart from the other nations. How could he have done that? That's not what it means. And there are other supports for this. What it means was, He took her and he dedicated her to God. Meaning that he effectively walled her up in a compound somewhere and she spent the rest of her life as a celibate dedicated to God. The Bible tells us there and then that that is never to happen again. And that is the origin of of the whole point as to why the jewish people have never had nuns you can find nuns women who dedicate themselves to celibacy for god in just about all other spiritual systems but in judaism the idea of dedicating oneself to celibacy as a religious objective is absolutely anathemic to jewish life the same, same for men but particularly with women that is highlighted in this we don't even know her name in the story of the daughter of Yiftach this series of women show the way that empowerment has changed Rachav, Dvora, Yael able to take their own destiny in their own hands I mean Yael has to use a tent peg not a sword because a woman shouldn't use a man's weapon or implement but by the time we get to the daughter of Yiftach she is disempowered and we don't even know her name. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, we find women at their most degraded state. Completely disempowered in the story of Pelegesh Bagiva, in the story of the concubine of the hill, which is a horrific story that precipitated an entire civil war in Israel that led to the almost genocide of a complete tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And you're familiar with that and it's, I won't touch upon it in detail, but it's a horrendous story about, right at the end of the judges, about a man who is traveling with a concubine and they come to a place in Benjamin. And for whatever reason, she's sleeping outside the house and the men of the town come And they all brutally rape her all night and kill her. That precipitated a civil war. And so we see over the course of the judges, this transition in the status of women to the point where they are completely disempowered and degraded. But that is all about to change. Because here is where we see the fundamental shift in Jewish history towards an entirely new an entirely new setup in Jewish history called the monarchy we are about to get kings and queens and that is going to change everything we have a distinct shift after the civil war that nearly led to the destruction of the tribe of benjamin we have a shift in jewish history where people are starting to call for a centralized authority and uh, a sense of national cohesion and that problems uh, about the national presence of the people of israel in the land of israel can be solved if we have a unified approach and that led to calls for a king but we don't yet have a king. And uh, I want to open this with a woman that shows something very interesting about the way that the status of women and the empowerment of women begins to shift towards the monarchy in a different kind of way. Women obviously, and this kind of goes to the point, is that during the early stages of Jewish history, the role and status of women was far more fluid than what it was going to become. It is true that there were certain conventions that women didn't do, such or did or didn't do, such as carry weapons or fight battles and so on. And when they did, it was considered remarkable. But in other ways also, uh, their roles were fluid. They could be leaders, they could be teachers, they could be spiritual guides, uh, they could uh, affect a great you know pursue anything there was no real glass ceiling but that becomes evident that women are more and more constricted in their status as time goes by once we come to the monarchy and we're looking at a type of national cohesion uh, things get a bit interesting there is a woman who is married to a man and you know that there's been a convention for a long time in Jewish life that if a couple is married uh, and for 10 years and they don't have any children that the husband can take another wife in those days it wasn't a case of having to divorce your first wife that wasn't a problem Uh, you could have more than one wife and so we're talking about a woman that was married had no children and her husband had taken another wife and of course she started popping out the kids and uh, once that happened she uh, became a bit nasty towards her uh, rival and started uh, Kind of deriding her a bit and making her feel quite inadequate for the fact that she had no children. Her name, of course, is Hannah and uh, her rival Penina. Now they are married to a guy called El Kana. El Kana always reminds me of the type of guy that is a very nice idiot, uh, he is quite religious. And every year, he takes his two wives and his children, uh, Panina's children, the whole family, and they all go on a pilgrimage to the spiritual center of Israel, where the tabernacle, the sacred site of Shiloh. And they go there, and there's lots of families come, and they have a big the sacrifice. And the sacrifice meant that they part of the animal goes to God, part to the priest, and everybody that sits around having a huge meat fest with wine and this parties, and it's it's a whole it's the pilgrimage to Shiloh so he takes his family every year and this one particular year he takes her and uh, she's really upset, she's sad panina has been giving her a hard time she's, she's pretty embittered and he gives her he gives all a portion of meat appropriate to Panina and all her children and then he gives Hannah a double portion of meat and he says to her, you know aren't I basically a good husband, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons I'm such a great guy etc. And I always think that's a bit idiotic. It's really quite unfulfilling. You know, you have this major issue where you're unfulfilled in your life and your husband's going, here, have a steak, right? <laughs> and and, and <laughs> aren't I great? And, you know, what do you need kids for? You got me. You know, it's just something missing about it. he oh, so, meant well. That's what I'm saying. He's a well-meaning idiot. Anyway, <laughs> she, gets, uh, she gets up uh, and she feeling pretty pretty bad about the whole thing and she wanders into the sanctuary. Late at night very quiet everyone's still partying outside and she wanders in and she kneels on the floor and she just pours out her heart to god is it so difficult god to give me one child just give me a child that's all i ask and if you give me a son i will dedicate him to god anyway the high priest ellie wanders in at this point and sees her on the floor i mean here's the point just before i talk about that this is a woman that is also effectively disempowered she is another man's other wife not even the one that's producing children her life is unfulfilled she's got nothing but there is one power That however disempowered you become there is one power that cannot be taken away from a person. Ever. And that is the power of prayer. And Hannah pours out her heart to God. Ellie sees this and he thinks that she's drunk. And he says, because you know everybody's drinking wine he thinks this drunken woman has wandered into the sanctuary and is just talking. And she says, go home Stop drinking and go home. She goes, I haven't drunk a drop. I'm pouring my heart out to God. I just want him to give me a child. And Ellie blesses her and says, May you have a child. And of course, within a few months, she gives birth. Okay, don't get technical. All right. (laughs) Probably nine months. Right, whatever. Maybe she was who knows? Right? Sometime during the course of that year, she gives birth to a son that she names, and bear in mind. that's one power also that women had they were naming their children she named him Shmuel and of course when he was old enough she brought him to the sanctuary where he was given over to the priests to grow up and be part of the sanctuary he was to be a Nazarite his whole life he wasn't a priest but he went on to become the great spiritual sage and leader of Israel and not only that, but he is then the one that goes on. Samuel is the one that goes on to anoint the first two kings of, of the United Kingdom of Israel. Hannah is extremely important. She shifts the balance of empowerment by utilizing her own spiritual power to open up and honestly pray. People, prayer was not a notion before that. The whole way in which prayer and the power and efficacy of prayer comes into the Jewish narrative, comes in through a woman, comes in through Chana. And it's not just any prayer, but it affects a huge revolution within Jewish history. Samuel anoints the kings, and that <laughs> is a very, very different change of direction. That affects the next, certainly the next thousand years of Jewish history if not the next 3000 years because we are still dealing with the concept of a monarchy the concept of a monarchy ultimately became embodied in the concept of the Messiah the Messiah is really only a concept that exists because of a spiritual mistake that we made back in the time of Samuel to adopt a king we were never meant to have kings, but once we have a king, then we have this three thousand at least loop that we have to go through till we get the last king, which is the Messiah, and then we can all go back to being normal. So it is in fact the prayer of Hannah is a prayer that effects redemption. And it introduced that's why she is seen as the, the 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 icon and the protogenitor of the whole concept of prayer now what then happens is samuel anoints saul and of the tribe of benjamin saul becomes king and uh, he's only king for a few years it turns out he's a bit of a and then we see the rise of this obscure judean shepherd boy that's going to go on to become the big and greatest and iconic prototype of all the kings of Israel who is of course King David and King David has a very very complex relationship with women and with various women he married 18 women uh, I'm going to look at but he ha- I'm gonna look at three of them but he had he had complex relations with all the women in his life, including his own daughters, his sisters and so on. But we're going to just look at the wives because they represent something about the theme I want to talk about tonight, which is really the empowerment of women and the way it's shifted throughout the biblical narrative. Of course, the first woman that really David is associated with in any kind of depth is the, uh, his first wife. And that is a daughter of King Saul. That is, Saul had two daughters Merav who was promised to David and Michal Saul gave Merav to another man and by this stage uh, Saul was already suffering from the paranoid delusions regarding David that uh, turned out to be correct um, and was a really quite wanting David off the scene and he said to David who by this stage I mean, David had killed Goliath and he was you know already playing the harp for saul and he was already charismatic and becoming david his his style was definitively on the rise he was best friends with the king's son and his and the king's son's sister michal uh, they, uh saul said you can marry uh michal uh the younger sister but uh you need to bring a dowry for that and uh the dowry is going to be you need to bring me the foreskins of a hundred philistines and David went and brought Saul the foreskins of 200 Philistines. Uh, just to clarify, by the way, that doesn't mean that 200 Philistine men were now running around being Jewish. It means they were dead. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify that. Um, but, um, and then uh, Saul gives Michal to David. David uh, Michal loves David. David's attitude to Michal is a little bit more not, a bit more ambiguous but Michal loves David and she even saves his life on a couple of occasions the famous you know episode where Saul sent soldiers to look for David and they came into their their private apartment and Saul and Michal had done the whole straw man in the bed trick while she let David at the window etc Uh, and when once David was fully on the run and Saul was using the army to pursue him everywhere um, uh, Saul took his daughter Michal and Annulled her marriage to David, and married her off to another guy, Paltiel ben Laish. And then, of course, later on, when David does become king, he commands that Michal is returned to him. In one of the most pathetic scenes in the whole of the Bible is when she is wrenched from Paltiel ben Laish who she obviously has been living with and have grown very fond of each other and he actually accompanies her and the soldiers taking her weeping the whole way until they get to just before a certain point uh, near Jerusalem where they the soldiers turn to him and they say you can't come any further and he has to watch as his wife effectively is taken back into Jerusalem where she has to live with David later on when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem on that very joyous day and David out of great exuberance and joy stripped down to his undies effectively and danced in the street and Michal was reprimanding him saying you acted like a common servant the King of Israel dancing naked in front of anyone everyone it's highly embarrassing and we're all ashamed and David was very upset at her qualifications on uh, on her criticism of his joyous spiritual exuberance and told her, well, you will never have children. And so Michal never had children, famously. Now, what that shows about Michal, this is the first of David's three wives, he's got a lot of wives, but I want to talk about three of them. The first, this woman is Michal, is that, interestingly enough, we look at Michal, she's really effectively a pawn. She doesn't have, despite growing up with immense privilege she's a princess she's the daughter of a king but she herself has no power she's married off to this guy she's taken given to another guy she's brought back to this guy she's told what she can do She's told what she can't say etc and yet ironically at the same time today in within uh, feminist movements within the jewish world and within within the the orthodox uh, feminist world and within the wider Jewish culture, Michal is starting to be appropriated as a kind of proto-feminist icon. And there's something very interesting about that because the rabbis in the Talmud tell us one thing about Michal. Despite all of this disempowerment, Michal is unique in Jewish history, certainly in the eyes of the rabbis of the Talmud and the way that they read Michal and a historical tradition that they list in the Gemara Eruvin in the Gemara, and they say we have a very ancient tradition that Michal used to put on tefillin you know what tefillin are, they are the phylacteries that men wear in the mornings in the prayer service they bind them on their hands and on their arms and their heads it's always been regarded as a ritual that applies only to men with the exception, and there's a big discussion in the Talmud about whether women should not put on tefillin or whether they can if they want to, and they cite the example of Michal Bat Shaul, Michal the daughter of Saul, as a woman who put on tefillin. Therefore she becomes an interesting icon for contemporary feminists about the right to have autonomy over one's own spiritual expression. And that's kind of interesting because it shows that women's empowerment was being channeled in different ways. The second of the women that David married that I want to look at is <coughs> started, as, as so many of his wives did, the wife of someone else. Um, <laughs> she, this is a woman, uh, put your hand up if you know the name. I'll start saying a bit like a who's who. Tell me when you I know who's not yet, no, 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 no. No, we're not at Bachar. No, we're saying, oh, Bachar, look at No, well done. I'll, I'll get on to it in a second. Abigail. 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 Abigail is married to a guy called Nabal. Nabal, the name means a base fellow, and he was a bit of a base fellow. He was a bit of a landed, uh, had a, quite a lot of real estate going on there, and he had estates with cattle and sheep and so on and david was running around he's not yet king he was on the run from saul effectively but he had a little army and they spent quite some time uh, you know patrolling nabal's estates and during the course of which they protected nabal's estates by fighting off marauders and uh, doing a bit of shepherding and so on at the end of a season of doing that david Uh, sent a message to Nabal saying look we're about to move on but I'd quite appreciate your generosity towards me and my men if you could give us some provisions we have spent the last few months looking after your stuff and Nabal goes basically and the Tanakh doesn't use this language but Nabal basically gives him the finger and says "Uh, no that ain't happening go where you like you're not getting anything from me that enraged David who thought that was a deep wronging and he threatened to come and wipe out nabal and his entire household the night before he was due to do that nabal's wife abigail took a number of camels and low camels donkeys and loaded them with provisions and went down to meet david at his camp and basically said look you know my husband maybe not the brightest spark in the box he's a bit of a whatever but look don't just just if you would calm down if you would accept this generosity on behalf of our household and it was a very generous offering several donkeys laden with food and provisions and so on please take this and just spare us and i know that you know we've offended you and you're very great in other words she was using wisdom and a way of talking that was able to calm David down and he accepted this and he moved on a few days later Nabal's having a party at his house and Abigail goes to him and tells him what she did and that she gave David because Nabal's feeling pretty pleased with his answer that he gave David Abigail tells Nabal that in secret she went and gave David all those provisions Nabal hears that flies into a rage has a stroke and dies And then David marries Abigail. David was so impressed with Abigail that he decided that she should be one of his wives. And that's pretty much the detail that we know about Abigail. Although we do know that she followed David and went with David on all of his subsequent adventures. And eventually ended up living with David's extended family in Jerusalem. Abigail became one of the main wives of David. Yes, yeah, yeah. They were very close. He had a lot of respect for her. The rabbis, of course, <laughs> tell us that Avigail was. Now, I know this, th- these sorts of comments when I bring in the rabbis tell us. Um, they tell us more about the rabbis than they do about these women. But the rabbis tell us that Avigail was one of the four most beautiful women that the world has ever seen. Those women, who are, of course, all from Jewish history and all from the Bible, are Sarah, Rachav, Abigail, and Esther. And Abigail was in that set. Like, there are other very, very attractive women, gorgeous women, uh, sensationally looking women, but these women are the four most beautiful women the world have ever seen. Present company except. No. <laughs> <coughs> be that uh, smart, <laughs> no exactly In, although they although they did talk a lot about Abigail's wisdom about that she was wise and what she did was extremely wise and I'm just going to go into the yes you, I'm going to go into the midrashic for just two seconds on that because it's an audience it's late at night and I just want to challenge us and um Uh, Talk about all these issues because they do come into play in various ways, but it's a bit delicate. But I'll I'll try and talk about it. Uh, The rabbis, the rabbis fill in the gaps and say that Avigail. This is not history. This is midrash. And once again, I'll say this because people go, "Why are you telling us these stories from the rabbis?" It's not even because they give us an idea about the way that these women have been received as icons. But they say that Avigail went to David and the real wisdom was that she went to him with a question, a halachic question, a question in Jewish law related to Nida. The concept of Nida is all the laws pertaining to a woman who is in a menstrual condition. Women can't have relations with their husbands until they've been to the mikvah, they can't go to the mikvah until they've waited a certain amount of time, and they can't start waiting that certain amount of time until they know that their menstrual that their ovulation is, or sorry, that whatever it is that I'm trying to find the word for has finished. And she presents David with this question, and David says, Well, I can't look at this tonight, I have to wait until the morning. Obviously she's presented him with a garment that has some kind of mark or staining on it, whatever, and she wants to know whether that discoloration is going to mean that she can't go to the mikveh. And he says, well, I can't look at this now, I have to look at it in the morning. She goes, well, couldn't you do the same thing with the decision you've made about my husband's family, given that it involves so much bloodshed? Couldn't that wait until the morning as well? And David turns and he says, but he's a rebel. And she says to him, but you are not yet king. And he has to acknowledge the truth of that. And of course, by the morning, he has calmed down. So the rabbis and Jewish subsequent Jewish commentators are very big on Abigail's wisdom. But it's a very interesting case of him encountering that. And then, of course, I've got to move on to the famous... Uh, wife probably the most famous of all of David's wives but Shevon, what I want to focus on is not so much the, f- the sensational part we all know which is that you know she was uh, bathing on a rooftop in Jerusalem one evening as you do and uh, David sees her and has her to, to come to him they have sexual relations uh, she becomes pregnant uh, but the problem is that she is married to another man uh, uriah the Hittite, who David then organizes to place at the front line in a very, very difficult assault, uh, and where he is killed, and then uh, uh, and this is after trying to convince Uriah to go and spend a night with his wife, so that the whole thing with David and the pregnancy can be covered up, and that is a very, very wrong thing to do, and that was a pivotal point, a pivotal point in the early monarchy. Things were never quite the same after that. All sorts of trouble and horribleness emerged from those actions. Obviously, ultimately, David was forgiven uh, because of the depth of his repentance. The child that Bathsheba had from that union died after seven days. David was inconsolable about that. But eventually, his marriage to Bathsheba became accepted... So much so that her son, the next child she gave, her son, Shlomo, eventually went on to become King Solomon, David's successor. But what's extremely interesting is Bathsheba's later career. People know all the sensational parts with the Rembrandt paintings and the things and they know that. But they don't really aren't that aware of just how Bathsheba went on to become an extremely influential and powerful person within the Davidic court. Much, much later, when David is effectively on his deathbed, one of his other sons, not a son of Bathsheba, but a son of a wife called Hagit, a son called Adonijah rebels this is not the first son to rebel against david we've already had of shalom's rebellion quite some time before adonia rebels and says i'm gonna be king when my father dies and but together with the prophet have to go into david and reaffirm with david who's lying on his effectively lying on his deathbed and he can't get warm so they're bringing him a 16 year old girl to keep him company company he kind of marries her in a formal seminary ceremony they're not really uh having relations but she's there to keep him warm she goes in and she speaks to david and gets him to reaffirm the succession through king solomon so in that way she effected the subsequent events and then when david dies and king solomon her son becomes king but sheva uh is approached by Adonijah. Adonijah is allowed to live after his rebellion. It's quelled. David, the royal decree comes straight from David's chamber. It quashes the rebellion and Adonijah is allowed to leave. But after David dies, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and he says, Could you please speak to my brother, your son, the king? I have a little request. Now I know I didn't become king and I'm okay with that. But would it be possible for me to marry Avishag? Would it be possible for me to marry my father's concubine wife? But Sheva transmits that request to King Solomon and Adoniah does not last the day. <laughs> Adoniah's job was to keep shtum, not to go asking for his father's wife. That, of course was a sign that the rebellion was still quelling that would have been a very very bad thing symbolically to have done and would have shifted the power relations now the question is did bat go in there knowing what king solomon's would, knowing what her son would respond and deliberately gave it in that way or did she genuinely feel kind of slightly remorseful because her son had become king she was actually feeling for adoniah and was prepared to transmit his question to the king we don't know but she played that role she was the person that people could approach to access the king and in fact the midrash tells us that David, king solomon had spent eight years building the temple and the day of its dedication had approached and it was the morning of its dedication after you build something the most important public building project in the whole of jewish history (coughs) and the morning of its dedication the king is not there because the king is still asleep he hasn't woken up but no one can go in the reason he slept in is because the night before he had married the daughter of pharaoh and had been up all night partying and he was asleep and no one wanted to go in and wake the king. That's something you do not do. And the only person they could ask to go in and wake the king was his mother. And Bathsheba went in and woke up the king and so that he could actually go and dedicate the temple. There's something metaphoric in that about the way that Bathsheba is the arouser of redemption, the arouser of the revelation that eventually is Jewish history always works towards ultimately now i um <laughs> women are not becoming monarchs in this period that's because if it's not like henry the eighth where you go and one woman doesn't have a son so you chop her head off and you marry another woman and chop her head off and, you know, until you get a son Right? You can have as many wives as you like. So you just find a son somewhere and he becomes the next king. There was an assumption that the king is going to be male. Women were not becoming monarchs at this stage. They were playing this kind of uh, manipulating, maneuvering role behind the scenes. But they themselves are not sitting on the throne. As you know, after the death of King Solomon, this united kingdom was split into two a northern kingdom of Israel well a southern kingdom of Judah comprising two tribes and a northern kingdom of Israel comprising ten tribes the southern kingdom had the Davidic dynasty and so it was very stable in the northern kingdom the main mode, it was like a photocracy, whoever was strongest Climbed to the throne. If you woke up one morning and wanted to be king, you simply killed the guy who currently was the king. And if you had enough following, you would become king until next Monday. That's how it was in the northern kingdom. uh, Certainly for the first few generations until round about the middle of the 9th century BCE, where we start to see the first stable dynasty in the northern kingdom, which was, of course, the house of Omri. Now those of you who are sitting going, ah, Omri another figure from the Bible, right? Another kind of, you know semi-mythical character this is what I need to point out to you, that by the time we get to this stage in history we are in historical time. Go to the British Museum today and go to the Assyrian exhibition and look at the black obelisk and you will see Omri of the Kingdom of Israel mentioned in Assyrian Chronicles so now we are definitively in historical time Omri has a son called Ahav and Ahav, Omri marries Ahav to a woman who is the daughter of a royal family of the Phoenicians up here where Lebanon is and brings him her in order to make an alliance with the Phoenicians. He marries his son Ahav to this royal woman called Jezebel. Jezebel doesn't just come to live in Israel and go, OK, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a queen of Israel now. So whatever I believe personally is not doesn't matter. I'm going to have to at least obey the protocols of the place. I'm going to have to be Jewish on the outside. No. No! She brings with her her entire spiritual system. She brings priests. She brings prophets of her religion which is the worship of Baal. Now I say Baal and you go, oh Baal. And Baal is not some simple monolithic religion. Baal is a very complex set of beliefs going right across the Middle East. And the fundamental mythologies of Baal, you know, the fight that Baal, the storm god, is having a fight with his father El, and with the underworld god Mot, and with the sea god Yam, and there are all these things going on, and there's an underworld, and they come up. All of those fundamental mythologies become the underlying mythologies of a lot of the religions of the ancient world, right through from Greece and Rome, Egypt, and so on. Baal is a complex, impressive religion. She brings Baalism with her. Her husband builds a temple for her. And she sets about trying to convert the entire nation to Baalism. Most of the time, she is perpetrating social injustices with her husband. I mean, I said, we're going to talk about women. Not all the women. We're going to talk about a nice woman. She's perpetrating horrendous social injustices. And, of course, is fighting the biggest prophet in the whole of the biblical age, who is, of course, Elijah. Elijah and they have a daughter and their daughter is Atalia and Jezebel and, Aha, and Atalia gets married off to the king of Judah so now the house of Omri is able to make an alliance with Judah through marriage and Atalia who is as big a ballast as her mother gets married to the king of Judah now Yehoram and they have a son Ahaziah All all of the um, main characters in this scenario get wiped out in the massive reformation revolution that happens. The most bloody revolution that happens in the Bible that I'm sure... I don't need to tell you about and they are all effectively killed by one person the person who is affecting that revolution who is told by god to wipe out the house of omri i'm of course talking about i think it's elijah no 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 elijah is zapping people it's true <laughs> but he's not actually going around uh, this person effectively killed everyone they met they killed uh, Ahav, they killed Jezebel they killed, uh, Ye- they killed the king of Israel, they killed the king of Judah, they killed 400 prophets of Baal, they killed everyone and that of course is Yehu the Yehu revolution is the most bloody revolution in the whole of the Bible, Yehu was a guy that when you met him he killed you Right? Hi Yehu, how are you going? <coughs> right? Now while Yehu is affecting <coughs> mayhem Psycho killing mayhem all around the north. In under God's command, uh, not not every single act, but he's just generally told you need to take down the House of Omri, so he, he does it. Atalia, Jezebel's daughter, seizes power in the south and has herself appointed as queen. She becomes the queen of Judah the first female monarch in the whole of the biblical period and she sets about genociding all of the descendants of the davidic household all of them atalia and of course carrying on her baalist and promoting her baalist cult one one year old baby is saved by an incredible woman called Yehosheva. Yohosheva is the wife of the high priest Yehoyada She takes this child called Yoash and hides him in the temple for six years. When the child is six or seven, he's brought out. The crowd is assembled. And they crown him as king. Atalya runs over to find out what's going on, sees the child being crowned king, freaks out, and she's seized by the crowd and executed. That is the end of her reign. We have this interregnum period, not interregnum, but 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 this like interval in the middle of the temple period in the southern kingdom where it is ruled by a very very vicious Queen so for the Bible even when a queen does come into power it's not perceived as a positive thing unlike later in Jewish history and we'll even discuss this in the next talk we find that women are coming into power as monarchs very very effectively and productively but in the biblical narrative Jezebel and Atalia were seen as extremely wicked people Although, you know, Yehu at the end of the day, after he fed her, threw her out a window, and then fed her body to the dogs, he wasn't. Yehu was not a simple person, uh, or maybe he was. But he said, "Find the remains and bury them, because she was, at the end of the day, the daughter of a king. She was of a royal fam of some form." And uh, the rabbis actually tell us that Jezebel was eaten entirely by dogs as foretold except for her hands and her feet and the reason for that this is Midrash is because whenever a funeral procession or a bridal party would go by she would walk out and clap her hands and if it was the deceased say something about the deceased and if it was a bridal party say something nice about the bride and groom and based on that her hands and feet were not eaten by dogs but the rest of her was the rabbis were very, very upset with Jezebel, as was the Bible. No, you don't even need the rabbis for that. The Bible is very upset with Jezebel, and that's why her name has come down in history as the embodiment of... Although it has a slightly different meaning today, but it's the embodiment of a... She really was the Lady Macbeth of the Bible. She was girding, goading chav on to, uh, to do all sorts of unpleasantness. Now, however... Okay, okay. Uh, I know where I wanted to start and I know where I want to end. So I want to start with Rachav, And I'm going to now just go in the last few minutes, I want to go to the end of the first temple. If we look at the year around about the year 600. So we know that in Judah, uh, just prior to this, and a few decades prior to around about here, uh, not so much the 620, in the middle of the uh, 7th century BCE, there was a series of awful, awful awful kings in Judah, the northern kingdom by the way has been vanquished, that's gone already in 720, the Assyrians came and they took all those people away, that's gone, we have the southern kingdom, but the southern kingdom had a reformation round about 700 under King Hezekiah and then a century of awful kings who degraded the social justice and degraded the economy and degraded the spiritual welfare of the nation to a very very bad point including including the erasure of all copies of the Torah and all copies of all the literature that had come down through the prophets were burnt and erased during the times of the kings of Menasheh and Ammon. However, Ammon's son woke up one morning and decided around about the age of Bar Mitzvah and decided that he was going to be a very different king and effected a deep and profound reformation. This was not a bloody revolution. This was a spiritual and religious reformation. Now as part of that reformation, that's the Josianic reformation. That's Josiah. And as part of that, Josiah decides to fix up the temple. And they are fixing up the temple. And they find inside the walls of the temple the last remaining scroll of the law. And they open it up and the first verse that the king's eyes land upon when it's brought to him is the verse in Deuteronomy that tells him that your king is going to be carried into captivity and the nation will follow soon after because you have disobeyed God and you have uh, ignored what I wanted from this society. Josiah is obviously deeply shaken, but he needs to go to the spiritual leader of the age to ask two questions. One, is this actually the Torah? They don't even know that. And the second question, if this is the Torah, is what is written here true? Is it going to happen? And That is a generation where you had a number of choices as to who you would be the spiritual leader of that generation. That is a generation that includes the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet Tsephania. But the King Josiah does not send these questions to any of those. He sends them to a woman who he regards as the spiritual leader of that generation. And that, of course, is... (laughs) <laughs> I knew there was a reason I'm here that of course is and we're just going to talk about her for five minutes then we'll wrap up, that of course is the prophetess Huldah Huldah answers Josiah Huldah by the way who regarded herself as a, that's why it's nice to wrap up here as a descendant of Joshua and Rahav Huldah answers uh, just uh, the messengers. She says, tell the man who sent you that this uh, text is indeed the text of the Torah and that what it says about the exile of the king and the nation will happen. But because you have been pious and have humbled yourself before God... You see, too much bloodshed, too much corruption has happened. They have to be requited. We can't roll that back. It's going to happen. But because you have been pious and have humbled yourself before God, you will not see this in your lifetime. You will die before these things come about. And Josiah goes, "Eh, okay, good. It's always very strange. He's like, yeah, fine. Oh, good. Okay. So I'm not going to see them. That's all right then. And of course, Josiah... Uh, Is famously killed in the Battle of Megiddo in 609, and eventually uh, all of those things happen. Uh, Khulda is not her name. Uh, The name Khulda means, anyone know what the word Khulda means? It means a weasel. Midrash explains that she was called that because of the language that she used when she referred to the king, that man that sent you. And I have often read that as understanding that, as the fact that I think she was a bit peeved that the king had not come himself to see her because she was a woman. In other words, it's not just that man that sent you, it's that man that sent you. You go and tell him she was quite a strong-headed woman in that, I mean, maybe just normal woman, but offended by the fact that he hadn't come himself, but she was kind of chastised for that. But there's a deeper reading of the concept of weasel. What does a weasel do? A weasel burrows from one side of a hill to another. And in fact, we know of Chuldah right throughout the Second Temple, the southern gates of Jerusalem, throughout the second temple period, had a gate known as the gate of Huldah. Because that is where she sat every day, where she had a school. She was a teacher. And she taught all of the traditions of Israel and all the laws of Israel to the succeeding generation. That generation, the generation of The next generation the generation of ezekiel and daniel and all of those tremendous figures went on to create the identity of the jewish nation in the exilic and post-exilic period in other words she in a sense borrows the spiritual traditions from one side of the babylonian exile to the other and that is where we see channeled a new form of empowerment for women in the sense that she is perceived as really the prototype educator in jewish history she is the first person that we look at and say her primary objective was to teach she was obviously a great teacher she was obviously someone who uh was valued as a tremendous spiritual sage uh but ultimately even here by the time we get to the Second Temple, if we really think about it, the nature of women being able to control their own destiny totally, as we saw in the early stages, uh, has become eroded throughout, for the most part, throughout the monarchical period. But we still find women uh, playing roles of tremendous uh, impact and influence as they are challenging, as they are ch- channeling uh, different forms of empowerment. And that's a very, very important uh, aspect of Khulda. So uh, these are the ten or so women that uh, I wanted to uh, talk about this evening. I know, I know, I know that there are uh, a couple of extremely important women that I did not uh, really alight upon. Uh, one, of course, uh, which is back here um, in a kind of side narrative Uh, the Bible goes into the story of a woman called Ruth who is a Moabite Uh, she's a Moabitess Uh, and although she starts as a kind of semi-aristocrat she is in fact uh, as close as you might get to an ordinary woman but uh, she is obviously her story which is set in the time of the judges but is not necessarily regarded as capital H historical in that sense although she is the great grandmother of King David eventually and what is super super important about that is that uh, she represents the epitome of what it is to become a part of the Jewish people from outside, what it is to convert Many, 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 many many, many, many people in our generation have forgotten that many people have forgotten that have forgotten that when someone earnestly and genuinely wants to join their fate and destiny with the Jewish people, that is, when a person says, where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. That is the epitome of conversion. It is is all about the earnestness and honesty and sincerity of intent. And a special law was made... Because Moabites were not supposed to be entered into the covenant of Israel, the special whole point about Jewish law was worked out that that applies to Moabite men, but not to Moabite women. (laughs) And Ruth becomes not only a high-level convert, but she in fact becomes the great-grandmother and direct ancestor of King David himself. And the other woman I didn't delight upon, uh, which some of you are probably thinking, oh, I can't believe it didn't talk about that, is of course Esther. Uh, I didn't talk about many other women too. I didn't talk about the wife of Manoach, the mother of Samson, who, you know, sees a big angel in the field. And then, but the, 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 the thing there is she has to run and get a husband. Do you know what I mean? It's like that's, that's where the Bible is at with that. Because that happens around this time when women are already losing that sense of empowerment esther i will probably touch upon uh, in the next part because i'm putting her more towards the uh, second temple period the beginning of the second temple and bearing in mind that esther is very complex historically Uh, we're not entirely sure how that sits but thank you for listening to all that it will get very interesting as we get into less familiar people but no less impactful as history unfolds through the next phase of Jewish history and uh, we have a lot to cover so I uh, hopefully I will see you then.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.